Welcome to Smashing the Plateau. We help you get unstuck so you can do what you love and get paid what you're worth consistently. I'm your host, David Schreiner-Khan. You get some folks who their hair is on fire and they want to take every dollar that comes to the door. And so the, the salespeople, we've been taught, just say yes, and we'll figure out how we're going to deliver later. But that can be disastrous. Today on episode 588 of Smashing the Plateau, I'm here with CEO and executive development coach, David Lakin. I'm going to ask Dave how to determine when you should say no and much more. Stay with us to hear all the details. You can find out more about Dave along with all of our previous episodes at smashingtheplateau.com. Are you building your own business after a long career as an employed professional? Listen to our show, Going Solo, also found on our website, smashingtheplateau.com. Now let's welcome David Lakin. Dave is a retired Navy chief, licensed PMP, lean Six Sigma Greenbelt, executive coach, and CEO of Acacia Business Solutions. He helps CEOs and their executive teams achieve exponential growth through strategic thinking and organizational planning helping them grow in multiples rather than small percentage increases. Dave, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. How did you become a coach? Well, uh, after you know half a lifetime of being uh, in the Navy and working closely with my sailors and, and uh, you know leadership being uh, the foremost thing in the military, when I left the military, I was a program manager and I worked with spreadsheets and people on, you know remotely and the end results of what I did was out on a ship, so you never got to see the impact to the customer. And I was really impact-driven. Today, most people, you know, they want the instant gratification, and I'm no different from anybody else in that respect. So after six years of being a program manager and with a government contractor, I decided I want to get back to people. So coaching is one of the helping professions, you know, kind of like counseling and psychiatry and those types of things. And uh, it really put me back in touch with people and taking what I know about leadership and process improvement and project management and helping them to apply those principles in their business to see very quick and very great impact to their organizations and their lives and the lives of the people around them. Yeah, that's um, great rationale. And thank you for sharing that little bit about your journey and how you ended up becoming a coach. Was there a particular training that you took to make the transition from employee to coach? There was. You know, when I when I first uh, left program management, I joined an organization called Action Coach, which is a wonderful, wonderful global coaching franchise. And I, I bought my franchise license and stuck with them for five years until the license came to an end. And at that point, I uh, made decision to change the way I ran my practice and which was outside of their boundaries. So we agreed to part ways amicably. I love Action Coach and I love the people there. They do great, incredible work. But uh, it gives me the ability to do a bunch of things in my practice that uh, I couldn't do there. So that's how I ended up establishing Acacia. And that's a whole that's a whole different podcast, a long story about how that came about. Yeah. So I do want to ask you just a, briefly a little bit about the business side, and we'll get into the details of your specialty. What was the time frame from deciding to get trained as a coach, start your franchise, and working in the franchise, and then starting out on your own? Yeah, that's a great question. So in October of 2013, 
I made the decision I've got to make a change. And and at that point, I started the new job search and I kind of tripped over Action Coach on LinkedIn and started making phone calls to them. And within a couple of weeks, I firmly made that decision. And in March, I gave my notice, March 7th of 2014, I gave my notice that uh, I was going to be leaving the company in two weeks. Wow. And then how long did it take before you were trained and in your own business? So in my in my correspondence with Action Coach, I started that process. Once I firmly decided I was going to do it, then then I started. They have like a six month ramp up before you go to their boot camp academy. And then I went to boot camp, ten days, very intensive, great training. So officially in April or so, I opened the doors on on my journey with Action Coach, and that was it. Okay. And when did you end the franchise and go out on your own? In January of 2019. So five years? Yes. Okay. How did you figure out what your specialty was going to be? You know, I, I kind of worked with everybody for a while. You know, when you when you have no revenue coming in, you'll work with anybody. And uh, as a coach, we need, we need practice. So I worked a lot with my Chamber of Commerce, uh, reviewing business plans and, and working directly with business owners, a one-off relationship. I was in BNI. I was in Rotary and every opportunity to work with business owners, even you know whether they paid me or not, gave me more and more experience into what problems they had and what likely solutions that they had tried. So you know that that kind of got me into it. But the more I did it, the more I realized that I really like people who have to get dirty to get successful. Kind of folks that you know they need a shower at the end of the day. Uh, instead of the beginning of the day, because it's, it's just been that kind of day. And so that led me to construction. I tend to work with uh, people who work with their hands or did in order to grow their business. And so I, I like anybody who touches a house and the performance of their job is the kind of person I tend to work with, probably 90% of my clients. Okay. So a lot of work with the trades. Yes. Yeah. Blue collar. Mm-hmm. Which can be a great business. Oh, I mean, there's there's a incredibly, incredibly large. I mean, you think of every skyscraper, every bridge, every road, every highway. You know, we're talking a lot about improving infrastructure. That's all going to be done by blue collar folks. And uh, so, when people think of of uh, construction, it's not just the the neighborhood plumber and electrician and and air conditioning guy. It's all construction. So it can be extremely large businesses. Uh, although I tend to be, you know, somewhere under $100 million and, and usually under $20 million annual revenue uh, because I like to see the, the final impact of what I'm doing with the business owners. Right. But even running a $20 million organization has a lot of complexity to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So your business has clearly evolved and you have identified a pretty well targeted niche. How much did the the narrowing of your ideal client, how did that impact your business? And the reason I ask this is because it's, that's an issue that so many people struggle with, particularly people in the, in the consulting and coaching space, when they're first starting out, trying to figure out what that target market should be and what the niche should be is a huge struggle for so many people. So I'm just, you know, I'm curious to hear how you figured that out. Yeah. Well, 
it's it's a double-edged sword, right? The the longer you do it and the better you get at it, the more people you have come knocking on your doors, which is a great problem to have. But, you know, I don't care who you are, you get 168 hours a week. That's all we ever get. And you're going to hit that wall. And you need time to talk to your clients, you need time to prep for the meetings, time to wrap it up in your notes and whatever after the meetings. Sometimes you need time to do research for them. And so there's a finite amount of time in the week. And so you can't help everybody who comes and knocks on your door. So you got to be able to turn people away. And it's unfortunate. And and sometimes you really, really want to help. I sit on the board, board of directors of five different nonprofits because I love to help people. And that means a lot of my free time is devoted to helping those kinds of folks. But you got to be able to say no. So, you know, as I discovered who I liked working with the most and who I got the best results with, because it's useless if you love to work with lawyers, but you just don't get good results with them. I like to work with construction folks and I get great results with them. So it's a it's a very it's a good give and take relationship there. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. So in the process of learning to say no, what are some of the the challenges you have faced in figuring out when to say no and how to say no and what works for you now when you do say no? Often our coaching practices is just one of us, right? It's not like we have a big organization wrapped around us. Sometimes we do. There are larger coaching consulting agencies out there, but oftentimes it's just one of us. And even though it's just one of us, you have to have a clear mission, vision, core values, ethical code of conduct for your practice. And that means you need to know who you want to work with. Who do I work with? And so if they don't touch a house in the course of doing their business, maybe you should say no. You know, you get to look at that clearly. You know, should I say no on this one? If a dentist comes knocking on my on my door today, I've worked with dentists in the past and had great, great results with them, but they don't fit in my mission, vision, core values anymore. So, you know, I would probably say no to them because it's, it doesn't, they don't fit my cookie cutter, so to speak. And I, I hate to be that way. It's, it is a little bit painful, but, you know, if you stay with your one thing, you get used to seeing the same problems and, and implementing the same solutions and accelerating their growth and their improvement so much more quickly instead of having to keep so many professional languages in your head and pick and choose which one works here but doesn't work there. And it just simplifies everything and makes you much more effective as a as a business owner. Yeah. One of the things I see, particularly with folks that have had a long career first as a as an employee, is as an employee, you're often your performance review and also your your compensation is often proportional to the complexity of the problems you solve. And so as an employee, we get used to trying to both look for and trying to solve complex problems. Particularly, they they may not be all that repeatable. And as, as you just pointed out, as a business owner, it's actually, you produce better results if you're dealing with um, a very similar kind of problem over and over again. And it also means you can do it faster which means that for you know for your own business it tends to be more profitable. So that's uh, another another way that um, those who make the shift from from employee to self-employed often have to do something that's a little counterintuitive. You know, in my experience working with uh, 
uh, you know, startups and entrepreneurs. I don't know that I've ever worked with one who said, oh, I was totally prepared for the complexities of my own business. Uh, there's just so many moving pieces from insurance to overhead to hiring, you know, to, you know, buying supplies, to taxes. I mean, there's so many things outside of the one good thing, the one thing that you were really good at that decided that helped you decide to start a business in the first place. Right. Particularly like somebody who may have worked with his or her hands in the beginning. So they they were the tradesperson and then they became the business owner, which is a totally different set of skills and a different set of problems that they have to deal with. Yeah. I worked with a, a, a guy who his dad opened up a Nissan repair shop in the 1960s. And, and this guy grew up in the shop with his dad. You know, it's just a great image, you know, a little boy rolling around a mechanic shop and uh, growing up that way, being close to his dad his whole life. And then finally his dad passed away and he, he took on the business and ran it for the next many years. And his number one mechanic, you know, he was ready to retire and his number one mechanic said, well, I'll take over the business. And so he and I are here having this conversation about his number one mechanic taking over the business. And I said, look, if I'm sure he's a great, great mechanic, but if you don't put the right pieces in place, you know, now that you've got this large organization that's been open for 50 years, if you don't put the right pieces in place, you're going to lose your father's name on the front of that building within two years, my, my prediction at the time. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, he knows everything there is to know about breaking down and putting back together a Nissan. Somebody comes in and tells him what's wrong with it. He says, oh, I know where to look. These one, two, three places, I'll have it fixed. But what does he know about hiring and firing and taxes and payroll and you know property taxes and all that stuff? And his he was like, oh, my goodness, because he was on the cusp of signing over the business. And, uh, and ultimately, it cost him to wait a little bit and provide a bunch of business training before he ultimately did sell to that guy. Yeah. The business training is really critical. I'd love to talk a little bit more about this. Um you know, what we were talking about before, which is, you know, how to say no to um, clients or how to say no in your business. Mm -hmm. Where does this come up with your clients when they should say no and areas where they often struggle with it? Yeah. You know, you get some folks who their hair is on fire and they want to take every dollar that comes to the door. And so the, a lot of times as salespeople, we've been taught, just say yes, and we'll figure out how we're going to deliver later. But that can be disastrous. Uh, if you're in construction and someone rings your phone and says, hey, uh, I want you to do this this uh, kitchen remodel for me. It's a little bit crazy, but I want you to hear out my ideas and uh, and let's see if we can do it. And this is my budget number. You know, I've got $20,000 to do this kitchen remodel. And then you go in and you see they want to gold plate everything. They want the best of the best and they want it by next week. You got to be able to say no, right? Right. When the customer's demands... Uh, or expectations are beyond what you can deliver, then you got to decide, can I take the hit financially? Is it worth it for future business? Or uh, can I easily get the skills, hire the skills, outsource to get the skills uh, to accomplish the part that I don't know how to do? Or it's a nice dollar amount, but I could hurt my reputation if I deliver badly. So maybe the best thing to do is to walk away. And you have to weigh those things. Every time someone weighs a, a roll of cash in front of you, isn't necessarily a good deal. It's just a roll of cash being weighed in front of you. And it, it can be a better decision to walk away. Yeah, and a very hard decision when somebody's waving cash in front of you. Amen. 
<laughs> Dave, now that you have a particular niche and you have a specialty, do you see that there's um, some commonality in the kinds of problems that you solve for your clients? Yes. You know, it, they always center around time, team, or money, right? They, they don't manage their time very well. They don't manage their team very well, or they don't manage their money very well. A lot of times what I run into on the money aspect of it is that they don't have a profit problem as much as they have a spending problem. Uh, I worked with a, a builder once who, he, in fact, I ran into him a few weeks ago, and he said, I turned a profit for the first time last year. And I kind of looked at him crossways, and he, he knew what I was thinking. Because the problem that we had when we were working together wasn't so much that he lacked profit. It was that he bought his wife a car, he bought his son a car, and he paid for his daughter's college all out of the business. And, uh, and that was all profit. <laughs> it's discretionary spending. The money, after you paid your people, after you paid your overhead, and after you paid for the materials, the money is there. It's just a matter of what you... D- decide you want to invest it in? Do you want to invest it back in the growth of your business or in your lifestyle? And uh, either way, it's profit. It's just a matter of how you're going to invest that profit. Right. So what are some of the things that you typically will advise people like that? Well, first of all, there's a great book called Profit First by Michael Michalowicz. And uh, I love that concept of what to do with money when it is coming and going through your business. And he advises setting up different pools. So you have an operational account, you have a profit account, you have a payroll account, you have a taxes account, so that you can take percentages of every dollar that comes in and drop it in those various accounts so that you always have money to pay your payroll and taxes. You always have the money to pay your overhead expenses every month. You always have money to pay your material. And then as you learn to level off those accounts to the predetermined levels that they need to be at, then the excess goes in your profit account. And if you want to buy your wife a car or send your daughter through college and you can reward yourself you know, for running a great business and take money out of that profit account to do it, but that's after everything else has been paid. So that, that's one way is to, to set, up, set up your finances into you know, kind of pigeonholes so that uh, you know the things that have to be paid get paid, and you can recognize, look at the size of that, that profit account, or, ooh, my profit account's pretty low this month. I don't think I should be buying her that car. Right. It's a, very, it's a relatively simple strategy for managing your cash and making sure that you have the funds that you need for the most essential parts of your business, and mm-hmm. then it does definitely help you identify what's profit and, and, and make some of those decisions around how you can use it. So similarly, time is a resource that you know we can measure out the way we do money, right? Again, we get 168 hours a week. How many of those hours do you want to spend on your business? I always recommend having a beginning and an end of your day, even if, you know, for for those of us who get to work from home, you know, get up, get dressed, you know, have your breakfast, go to work, go to your office at your house, go to work. And then you do your work through the day. And then, you know, my work day ends at five o'clock and then I'm done with work. I leave that office, I leave that room, I close the door and I don't go back until eight o'clock next morning. And so even though I work from home, I'm disciplined about what my working hours are for the most part. We always make exceptions, but for the most part. Uh, Well, your time is like a cash account, right? So you decide I want to spend this many hours a week 
at lunch. I take an hour and a half lunch every every day, but that gives me time to meet with other people. Or I, I spend, you know, not more than a half an hour in the morning checking email and not more than a half an hour in the afternoon checking email and Facebook and all the different accounts that you need to have for your time. You know, you have an, an account for your time, which is meeting with people out in town and networking and and spreading the word about Acacia Business Solutions, right? And so when you divide up your time into those various accounts, then you know what your resources are, what you have available, what you can spend and what you can't spend. Yeah, it is so important to be clear on what resources you have available and how you deploy them. Dave, this has been a a great discussion about how you've gotten into business coaching, how you've developed your particular niche, um, some of the kinds of problems that you solve. Where do you see coaching like you do going in the future? I know there's there has been a growth of coaching in general over the last, I don't know, decade or more. Where do you see things headed in the future? Mm, how long do I have to answer that question? <laughs> you know, because there's lots of different kinds of coaches out there. There's the coaches who became a coach because they got fired and they were between jobs or you know, they lost their business. Or, you know, for people who want to be a coach, Look at your life. How, how much of a helper have you been? Are you a great problem solver where you can look at a set of resources, just like a toolbox, and say, what resources can I put against this problem to solve it? And then get good at that over time. Coaches need to always be learning, always be taking courses, always be going to conferences and communing with the rest of the coaching community. We need to always be growing and learning so that we can continue to help our clients. Uh, as soon as you think you're done learning and you, you've learned it all, it's a good time to retire, in my mind. I think coaching is going to continue to grow as a profession. But uh, for, for people who are thinking about hiring a coach, I would seriously advise them to ask good questions just like a coach should be doing. You know, what kind of training have you had? How long have you been doing this? Tell me about your clients and your client results. Tell me about bad experiences with clients. Be willing to ask a lot of questions. And then once you do hire the coach, be willing to open up and allow that coach to help you grow into the changes that you need to make in your business. Yeah, that's actually great. Great advice about the decision-making process for businesses that are thinking about taking on a coach and getting some advice. Dave, if somebody wants to go deeper with anything we've discussed today, or learn more about you, access any resources that you have, where would the best place be for them to go? Uh, they can always reach me through LinkedIn uh, or Facebook, uh, Dave Lakin, and, and you'll see, uh, I keep all my contact information out there. It's, it's, uh, I'll be the only Dave Lakin business coach out there, executive coach. Uh, of course, your program notes probably have my email. Please feel free to reach out to me directly. I'll talk to anybody. I love to help. And, uh, and even if you're not in construction, Let's have that conversation because sometimes I got to say no to my model uh, in order to be able to give the best help. Sounds great. Well, Dave, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Smashing the Plateau. My guest has been CEO and executive development coach of Acacia Business Solutions, Dave Lakin. Thank you, Dave, for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. When you visit the Smashing the Plateau website at smashingtheplateau.com, You'll find a summary of each episode, along with the links we mentioned on the show. Today, we learned how to determine when you should say no and much more. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues to help them smash the plateau. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.